Welcome back to Mad Tales. I'm James Nolan. It's Monday, July 27th, 2020, as I record this in Studio X in the stupendously humid Fredericksburg, Virginia. I have a few things I'd like to tell you about before this week's episode. Principal photography on Lilith Wrapped last week, and it was a fantastic, intense experience. We got some amazing looking shots. The cast and crew were great. And now we're on to post-production. I'm not going to go on at length about the process on this podcast because that's not what you're here for, but I am starting a new podcast with my co-writer and editor, the mythically prolix Chip Warren. That's Chip C-Hip Warren. I'll keep you up to date on the name of the podcast and when the first series will be available, but our first episode or two will have to do with an autopsy of sorts of my first indie film production, what went wrong, what went right, and how we're proceeding. Speaking of proceeding, the Lilith film is in the can and needs finishing money. So I'm doing a second round of funding. And if you want to support the film, we're using Spreadshop to make the raise. It's a pretty cool online shop. They sell T-shirts, of course, but also hoodies, onesies, activewear, totes, hats, a ton of cool stuff. All of it has the Just Drink the Tea Deer design on it that you can see in the show notes. And the production designer, Jamie Bronson, might actually add a couple of new designs in there having to do with the Lilith film. All you have to do if you want to support the project is go to lilithfilm.com and click on the merch link and it'll bring you right to the page. So I knew this was coming in regards to Blood and Gold, but I'm going to have to shelve the book for about a month here. We actually have some investors interested in making a Lilith feature. So Chip and I are hard at work writing the synopsis and treatment and getting the whole structure of the movie right. And if funding comes through, there's going to be a feature-length script, and I'll have to do all of the producer duties that come along with it. So I'm going to be a little bit busy. Plus, I kind of need more of a break between the drafts that I wrote. I spent three, four months writing that first draft, and there's some uh, some big overhauls that I need to make to the plot and the characterization, and I didn't take it. I stupidly uh, went immediately into the second draft and, and, and started getting burned out on the story. So I think taking this month off will really, really help. But the plan and plot is in place, and I'll probably finish it up in the fall, and then it'll be ready to roll. So that's it for this week. Check out LilithFilm.com, support the project, go to the show notes for all of the links. And now we're on to this week's episode of The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake, The Snake 2. Waddle felt the weight before he opened his eyes. On his right foot, his lower back, his left shoulder. It wasn't crushing him, not yet. He tried to bite back the pain, but it hurt so... Stop. Fleck generals did not feel pain. Yes, he was trapped, but he could breathe. And the pain was nothing. Nothing crushed, nothing broken. He would find a way out. He had to. First, he pulled his arms into his body, feeling the rocks that covered him shift and fall away. He wasn't as deep as he initially thought, was he? In fact, when he pushed himself up, nearly all of the rubble fell away, 
leaving only his right foot caught. He pulled on it twice, but it was stuck tight, wedged between two massive blocks. There was no way to free it without some kind of leverage. He looked around to get his bearings. The archway was clogged with debris, completely blocking his escape, and the bulk of the chamber was filled with rolling mountains of limestone, sandstone, and chunks of wood. Two of CKKU's guards lay dismembered on top of it all, their staffs resting in their open palms, just out of reach. A half-dozen other men were scattered about, some in pieces, some sticking out of the wreckage as if they'd been a part of the construction. The rest of the chamber, about a third, was untouched. As he surveyed the room, a noise came from the other side of the arch. Taquani. It had to be. Someone behind him groaned. Another guard buried up to his chest. He opened his eyes, gasping, and Kuatl waved his hands, trying to get his attention. The guard moaned again, louder this time, and the general picked up a rock and threw it, striking the wall. The guard looked up, surprised. Kuatl held his finger to his lips. He pointed at the archway. Still in pain, the guard nodded. He understood. But another guard somewhere out of sight didn't. He came around and started to scream. No! No! Stop! Kuatl hissed, but the man was out of his mind. The noise on the other side of the arc grew louder and something swept aside a swath of the rubble blocking the way. Coatl fell flat, his stomach pressing onto a sharp rock. He swallowed the cry, sucked in his breath, and waited. Nothing at first. Then the sound of one of the beasts as it jumped onto the debris and crunched over the stones. Then another one. And another. He remembered his makohito, and he felt along his belt for it, but it wasn't there. It must have fallen off in the blast. The staff, the guard's staff, was his only hope. He dared to lift his head and peek up over the rocks. There they were, three full-grown Taquani, stealthily picking over the wreckage, infecting whatever flesh they came upon. Once, twice, and double that again. Soon, the chamber will be filled with their kind, the monster's numbers replenished, and the destruction of the temple, of Iskatet, of the elders of the gallery, of anybody in the way of the blast of amber, would have been for nothing. They were almost upon him. Wild ideas filled his head, he could throw a rock, hit the nearest staff just right so it would turn in his direction. He could snag a body with it, use it as a shield. Yes, and then the hummingbird would come down from the sun, crush his enemies, and elevate him to the Scottet himself. The Taquani in the lead jumped forward and landed right in front of him. Coatl closed his eyes, waiting for the sting, the sensation of the larva pushing into his body. But it never came. He opened them again. The monster had stopped at the corpse of the guard to his right. Its foul smell filled the air mingling with the sour smell of sweat and blood. Slowly it leaned over and extended its stinger, piercing the dead man's skull, the stinger undulating as the eggs pulsed through. Coatl knew he was next. He put his hand under him, searching for the rock that pushed up into his gut, gathered his strength, quelled the fear in his belly. In his last moments, he would be strong and brave. He would die as a warrior. Just as he was about to act, someone cried out, Die, monster! It was the man behind him, the one buried to his shoulders. The Taquani released its victim, zeroed in, and jumped for him. The commotion shifted the stones and jarred the infected body loose. It tumbled down the little slope, the staff bouncing along behind, heading right for Coatl. He would only have one chance. He rose up to his knees, lunged for the staff as it clattered by, and managed to snag it by the end. Then the body struck him on the side and he almost lost his hold. Help! the soldier screamed. Coatl's grip was tenuous, and he had to be careful and quick. If he pulled too hard, he'd lose it. If he waited too long, the man behind him was dead. Then there was the corpse leaning against him, the tumor in its skull swelling, pulsing. Help me! Now! Now! Coatl panicked and lost his hold. The cursed staff rotated away. It was too far now, but if he got it to turn to him, 
He lunged again, feeling something in his ankle pop, but his fingers swatted the wood and the staff rotated. He grabbed it by the neck and twisted his torso, aiming at the Taquani, willing it to life just as he did before. But nothing happened. No surge of power rushed up his arm. No amber bolt shot out of the scepter. The Taquani didn't disintegrate. It reared back to strike the guard, who yanked his right arm out of the rocks, revealing the sharp end of a broken staff. He stabbed the beast in the leg and it squealed and struck him in the face with its talons, nearly ripping off his entire head. He fell to the side, his dying eyes staring at Kowadl, and with one last effort, he pointed at another guard sprawled next to him. There, he gasped. Then the Dequani fell upon him. Kowadl looked down. Of course, the guard's hand. He snatched it up and wrapped it around the staff, pointing it at the monster already heading for him. Now, he cried, shoving the staff at it. But again, nothing happened. Kowadl's eyes went wide. Oh no. The Tequani lurched for him, and he ducked as it swiped at his head, its talons shearing the top of the staff completely off. The scepter smashed in the rubble, and the amber poured out of it, hissing and bubbling. Kowadl grasped what was left of the staff in both hands and, just as the Tequani made its move, stabbed it right in its open mouth, the energy of the arc yanked him out of his trap. He tumbled end over end, stopping only when he slammed into a column on the other side of the chamber. He stood, shaking, barely able to put any weight on his right foot, which was swollen and bruised. At the other end of the chamber, the last two monsters eased themselves down off the pile, and behind them, three younglings burst out of the infected soldiers. Kowadl yanked the staff out of the dead beast's jaws, then hopped to the wall at his back. The monsters crept forward, wary, testing him. He jabbed at the first one and it barely flinched. A second jab and it bared its teeth. It was toying with him. He tightened his grip. The beast on his left fainted and he bit, swinging for its head and missing by at least a foot. It was all the first one needed. It pounced and tore into his right shoulder with its teeth. He screamed and plunged the staff into his exposed eye, stabbing over and over until it let go of his arm. Then he launched his weapon into its open mouth. It stumbled back, squealing, talons hacking away at the willow wood. The second one moved in, stinger exposed, and pierced his calf. He felt it put the poison, the burning ball of larva shooting into his muscle. He screamed and beat the thing with his fists, but it was pointless. Then something hot and liquid splashed onto his chest, and the monster lay in two pieces on either side of him, its guts a steaming pile on the stones. Zulak stood on the other side, holding a makohedal. Behind him lay the other beast, also slashed in two. His smile faded when he saw the sting on Kowadl's leg. General, he said. No. He batted aside a youngling and sliced the other two to pieces before returning to Kowadl. The meat in his calf had already begun to bulge. We can cut it off, Zulak said. No. You'll live. I've seen it done before. Kowadl shook his head. I'll go to the hummingbird, not to Mictlan. He held up his hand. Help me up. Zulak did, and Kowadl put an arm around his shoulders. Where are we going? Zulak asked. Out. The farther away from here we get, the longer it will take, right? Where, though? Kowadl smiled. The river. The river? Just take me there. The river Esquite did not suffer war. She did not suffer disease or death or time or strife. She simply was. Eternal. Ageless. She gave the Telek water to drink, wood to build houses, and fish to eat. But she stole things, too. Her surface might have been as smooth and as glassy as the obsidian they used to make their weapons. But beneath her water swam the horned Mesa, with its rows of teeth and strong jaws, and the swarms of Pictlin, with their razor teeth and depthless appetites. The Esquit was beholden only to her husband, Sabk, and Sabk did not care about anything but her, and he did not change, which was exactly how they both liked it. As long as she ran through the jungle to its end in the black void, Sabk was happy. And when Sabk was happy, 
Esquite provided for the people who lived on its banks. The Tlex sent him gifts to ensure this, wreathed flowers, totems carved from the driftwood the river shared, and when someone died, an old man or woman, a mother, a father, a child, they put the body in a canoe carved from a newly felled torchwood tree and sent it to ride the river's tides to meet Mictlan. When Kuwato was a boy, hundreds of villages lined her banks, so many that they all seemed to merge together. It was not really so. Each village had its own chief, and each chief reported to an official from the city. They sent tribute to the great Sikakeu, food, incense, and when the time called for it, their own sons and daughters. Sometimes the villages fought one another, usually over trivial things like whose crops were whose or whether one village was purposefully overfishing. If the violence ever grew too great, the nobleman responsible for the area sent in his troops, a jaguar or an eagle unit, to keep the peace. Normally it didn't come to that. Kowadl remembered friends and neighbors from the dozens of minor chiefdoms that surrounded his own, the boys and girls he played with as a child, the old men who took him hunting and showed him the ways of the jungle, the old women who sang to him and told him stories. All of them were gone now. Some were killed, some took their own lives. Time moved both fast and slow on the other side, and though at different ages his people became eternal, they were not immune to disease, they were not immune to poison, and they were not immune to weapons. When the lung filled... When the snake bit, when the spear gored, the flesh corrupted. And they were never replaced, for as his generation made its home here, so too did the Plicks, the pale warriors, with their tall city walls and houses that pierced the sky, and their weapons, the fast spears that they used to hunt and fight. When they came, the Tlek no longer bore children, for that was a part of Huitl's design. It happened to the beings that came before the Tlek, the ancient race that introduced them to the Amber. And once the Tlek appeared, they slowly died off too. So it was now with his people. Zulok walked in front, clearing the brush with his Makwahitl as they walked along the bank, which was to Quaddle's preference. He didn't want anybody to see him wince. The bulge in his calf grew larger. He could feel the thing inside of his leg feeding on him. He tried to ignore it, to bite back the pain. Zulok, he said, how did you know about the tunnels? I grew up in the temple. You grew up there? How? You remember after the incursions. When Sikakeu murdered Katiu's generals, his most trusted advisors, he gave them mercy. He could have sacrificed them on the temple stairs. Instead, they conquered the seven gates and served the Scottettes in the shadow of the sun. Except he didn't kill them all. My father was an advisor to Katiu. Sikakeu spared his life but took me as his ward. Before I was trained as a warrior, I was a cook, a tailor, an attendant. Kuwato remembered. After the mutiny was put down, Sikakeu slaughtered thousands of his enemies. The stones of the temple drowned in blood for weeks as one by one he tore the beating hearts from the chests of the men responsible, and their wives and children, too. These were proud people, fierce warriors, wizened leaders. Kuwato might have fought against them, but he respected their bravery. So Zulok's father was one of these traitors. Interesting. He must have been a chief of some minor village though it was more than likely that he was just some old warrior who got caught in the wrong side of the conflict. He wasn't important enough for his son to live. To disrespect the Scott Tet was to disrespect the hummingbird himself, and such contempt would not go unpunished. Zulok should have been sacrificed. What was the point in letting him live? It only showed weakness. A branch scraped against the bulging tumor, bringing the general to a halt. The pain was so great that it spread up his leg and into his belly, and he grew lightheaded and had to lean over and put his hands on his knees. The wound in his shoulder ached. His ankle throbbed. He'd lost a lot of blood. Too much blood. Zulok's voice cut through the haze. You can survive. I told you. I can cut it out. 
You know how that works, Zulak. Its teeth are in my bones, sucking it dry. But we're far enough from the amber. It's already stopped growing as fast as before. Zulak held up his weapon. I can slice it in two. It will never mature. But it will rot inside of me. My death will be long and painful. But... Kowadl stood to his full height and took a deep breath. You're not cutting it out. You cut it out, the next thing to go is the leg. And I won't let that happen. I'll meet Huitl whole. Yes, General. I just want to see my old home. Yes, General. They continued along a path that ran parallel to the river. Kowadl thought about his life as he limped along. About his fa- what his father would have thought of him, his mother. They'd lived so long ago that he couldn't remember much about them. Couldn't remember their faces. When had they died? Was it in a war, or did they become weary of life and pay the blood debt? It saddened him that he couldn't remember. He thought about the transformation. It was a capricious gift. For most, it occurred at some point in their youth, well after puberty, but before the ravages of time took its toll. The very lucky stopped aging before 25, when body and brain peaked, when the muscles were supple and forgiving, and the mind absorbed knowledge and adapted with ease. Some, however, waited their entire lives for the process to begin, and many committed suicide rather than live in eternity in the throes of useless dotage. Very few never grew out of infancy. Those were sent down to Mictolin as soon as their condition became known. It was seen as a grace. For Kowadl, it happened at the best possible age, 18. Imagine possessing the strength and agility of youth and the wisdom and worldliness of age. Huitl wanted something from him. Of that he was certain. It was why he trained so hard, killed so many, to serve his Scottet and please his God. But now he was worried. Would his life really end with the death of Sikakeu? How would he get through the seven gates if he'd taken part in the death of Huitl himself? The river ran to their right, and before them wound the branches and roots of his childhood. He scanned the darkness for signs of his old village, but found nothing. The jungle had swallowed it up, just like it swallowed up the rest of the villages. His leg finally forced him to stop, and he found the branch on the bank and sat. Behind him, illuminated by the light of the full moon, Black smoke from the destroyed temple gushed into the night. When he and Zulak escaped, when they slunk out of the temple like cowards, he'd seen the burned husks of humans and Taquani alike filling the streets, the doorways, and the alleys. He was glad they were dead. The Taquani for obvious reasons, but his own people too. Some had been in the throes of infection, with up to five or six tumors bulging out of their heads, their necks, their arms, their stomachs. Sikakeyu afforded them a kindness by killing them with the Amber Blast. And they died in battle so they would not rest in Huitl's shadow. They would join him in the sun. He was never the best or most competent leader, his Scottet, but at least he'd done this, however unwillingly. Something rustled in the brush a few feet off, and Zulak sprang to his feet, gripping his weapon. Who's there? Nothing. He looked at Kowadl, who shrugged. The brush shook again and, angered, Zulak waded in, slashing at the branches. Then he drew back. Huh? Whatever it was darted away. Kowadl couldn't see it in the darkness, but it was small and fast and brown. Zulak lunged to his left and snatched it up with one hand. It thrashed in his grip and slashed at his eyes, kicking and punching, and the brave warrior was almost overwhelmed. He held it out at arm's length, dodging the blows as best he could, half laughing, half grimacing as he turned to present it to Kowadl. Somewhere in the midst of the violence, the general finally understood what he was looking at. It was a girl. A little girl. At least she looked little. She could have been 60 years old for all he knew. As Zulak struggled back into the clearing, she bit his wrist, clamping down as hard as she could. He grimaced, but didn't let go. Then, another bush rattled, and another brown blur sped out and jumped on his back. It was a boy, 
half as old as a girl. He pulled Zulok's topknot, yanking his head back, then placed a sharpened piece of obsidian to his neck. In one swift motion, Zulok dropped the girl, pulled the boy's arm away, and flipped him over his head. The girl picked up a fallen tree branch and hit him in the shin. He howled and hopped away. Stop! He cried. Enough! Kawada would have helped, but the whole thing was too funny. He started laughing the moment the girl bit Zulok's hand. She ran over to the boy and helped him off the ground, and they stood there, glaring at Zulok, who was still wincing. He leaned over to look at his shin. She nearly broke it in half! Oh, the great Zulok! Kawadal said, still laughing. Supreme warrior of the Anton! A credit to his tribe! Very funny, Zulok said. He looked at the bite wound on his wrist. Broke the skin. This sent Kawadal into another gale of laughter. He turned to the children. They were strange-looking, their skin lighter than his, but not entirely white like the Plicks. There was a slightly olive tinge to it, too, and it looked thick and pliant. Their faces were broad and flat, but their eyes were blue, and their hair was long and blonde and shaved on one side. Their skulls were tattooed with an Ouroboros, the snake that eats the sun. They wore white robes cinched around the middle, but their feet were bare. "'Come,' Kowatl said. "'Sit. Anybody who can defeat an Anton soldier has earned my respect.' The boy glowered, mute, and the girl shook her head, two tight turns. No? Surely you can't be too busy to keep two old men company. You're not going to hurt us? The girl asked. Me? Hurt you? What could I do to harm such a fierce panther? She softened a little. We have to go. Go? Where? She pointed in the direction of the city, and Kowatl sighed. I'm not sure you're going to like what you find there. We have to deliver a message from our chief, Kabata. Kabata, Kowatl said. He hadn't heard that name in years. He was one of the early lords, from the time of the Great Exploration. Indeed, when his name was mentioned, they called him the Explorer, or the Seeker. The other lords called him crazy, accused him at various points of being a coward, a madman, a genius, a seer, whatever label best fit their argument at the moment. All Kowatl knew was that Sikakeyu seemed both afraid of him and amused by him. As one of the few lords who had not succumbed to the years and asked for the blood debt, He'd earned great stature and the Scottet's respect. As the only one who never traveled to the temple to pay tribute, he compounded the Scottet's anger. And yet, Sikikeyu never sent his forces to drag the insolent old man back to the temple. Kawadal appraised the little girl, wondering what her purpose was. The Seeker was alive? If he was, and if he still had his army. I'm afraid you're out of luck, he said. If you deliver your message, you'll be delivering it to the dead. Maybe you could tell it to me. I am a warrior. The little girl's face fell. She looked panicked. The city? How could everybody in the city be dead? It was eternal. Sikakeyu, the, the Scottet, the hummingbird and the sun lived there. But our village... The boy interrupted her. Don't tell him. He's a warrior. He might be able to help us. What are you about? Zulok asked. He looked at Kowatl. General, this is a snare. The girl glared at him and Kowadl shook his head and patted the air with his hands. Don't. Let me speak to her. Then a bolt of pain shot through his leg, and he automatically reached for the bulge, stopping at the last second. He grimaced back the pain. The girl whispered something to the boy, and he nodded. Speak up, girl, Kowadl said. I might like you, but you'll keep no secrets. She thought, calculating rapidly. Are all of the other warriors gone? Kowadl nodded. If they were in the city, yes. There were a few garrisons in the jungle, but... She looked at Zulok, his makohedal, then back at Kowadl. She pointed at his leg. The crone in my village can fix it. Kowadl pressed his lips together. Well, what are you doing here, then? 
We came for Sikakeyu and his jaguars, the Plicks. She broke off then, struggling to find the right words. Are all of your warriors dead? She shook her head. The, the Plicks? The Plicks what? Kian, the little boy, said, Don't, Selah. Speak up, girl. Selah pointed at the bulge in his calf. If you come with us, if you help us, my crone can heal you. Nobody can heal me. It's only a matter of time. The little girl nudged the boy. Show him. No. Show him, Kian. The boy, Kian, turned around and pulled the loose tunic he was wearing up over his shoulders, revealing his bare back. A massive scar rippled the skin, a perfect circle from the nape of his neck to the base of his spine. Zulak whistled appreciatively. Were you punished, little Kian? Didn't bring back water fast enough from the river? Kian let the tunic drop and turned around, angry. I was bitten by Taquani, he said. Two of them. They put the poison. <laughs> You're funny, little boy. It's true, Selah said. I saw it myself. Two balls the size of my head, bitten to his spine. Come back to our village, my crone. Kawada leaned forward. Selah, stop edging around the truth and tell me what's going on. She shook her head, trying to deny it. No, your leg. She can help. You don't care at all about my leg. You said it yourself. You came for men. Warriors. He gestured at Zulak. We're just two, but we're warriors. Why do you want us to come back to your village? She looked at the ground, ashamed of being caught. Tell me. When she wouldn't look up, Kian spoke for her. Fine, I'll tell. The Plicks. They came into our village and they... They're hurting. Hurting? They're in pain? No. The women. Why don't your warriors stop them? They're gone. Gone? Or dead? Selah shook her head. Will they be back? Kabata says so. Kabata says so. Kabata says so. Kowadal and Zulak shared a look, and the former sighed. Well, Zulak, he said, looks like you got your wish. He held out his leg. Huitl has work for me to do yet. Thank you, everybody, for listening this week. Don't forget to check out LilithFilm.com, JamesKnoll.net forward slash BG, and you can support this show for as little as $1 on Patreon.com. It's Patreon.com forward slash Mad Tales. You guys rock. I'll see you next week. Thank you.